0: Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. From England during the Norman Conquest, we are taking a sharp turn to the mannered world of Jane Austen. This month, I'm interviewing Pamela Mingle, who in her second novel, The Pursuit of Mary Bennett, fills in the story of the least regarded sister in the family featured in Pride and Prejudice. Mary is a classic middle child, third of five girls living in a small but comfortable house in rural England. In the days when young women needed a dowry to attract a husband, a father might be forgiven for thinking himself more cursed than blessed by having five daughters to provide for. Jane, the eldest, is beautiful. Lizzie, the second, has personality and wit. Daughters four and five, Kitty and Lydia, show little evidence of sense, but they are charming. In 1820s society, charm is much more desirable in a gentlewoman than sense. A shy, awkward Mary, who plays the piano indifferently and sings like a crow, seems like such an unlikely prospect for marriage that even her own mother has given up hope, as Mary discovers at the opening of the book. Chapter 1 Sometimes anger is a living thing. It rose up in my chest and made me want to chew thorns. They would tear at the tender flesh on the roof of my mouth, at my cheeks and tongue. When I swallowed, the sweet, salty taste of blood would linger on my palate, along with pointy bits of thorn. I squeezed my eyes shut, contemplating the pain. Why was I loitering outside the upstairs sitting room, eavesdropping on a conversation between my parents, especially since it aroused such ire in me? That couldn't be healthy. I leaned closer. To see all my girls but one settled. Such joy, mamma said. Is Kitty engaged?" then? My father asked. She soon will be, mark my words. We will have another wedding by Michaelmas. We had already celebrated three weddings in the family. My two elder sisters, Jane and Elizabeth, had wed wealthy and property gentlemen three years ago, Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy. Lydia, my youngest sister, formed a rather disastrous union with one Mr. Wickham, formerly of the militia, and went off to live in Newcastle as he was currently attached to a regiment quartered there. Only Kitty and I remained at home. Ah, you refers to Mr. Walsh, I assume, Papa said. Jane describes him as a reserved sort of fellow. Not at all the kind I thought Kitty would have chosen.' Perhaps she is too eager to be wed. I nearly choked on the irony. Kitty's foremost preoccupation was with finding a husband. And success at last! She had lately acquired a beau, a friend of Mr. Bingley, whom she met during a lengthy stay with Jane and my brother-in-law, the very man my parents were now discussing. What do you mean? He's a handsome man and has six thousand pounds a year. You only met him the once, Mr. Bennet, and cannot have formed a correct impression. And anyway, who cares if he is reserved? "'Kitty, perhaps?' "'I pressed my lips together to quell a laugh. "'I pictured Mamma casting my father a severe look "'and knew his gaze in return would not waver. "'Walsh has made his attentions clear, then. "'Shall I expect a visit from him soon?' "'Not yet, but it won't be long. "'Assured for some time of the matrimonial nature of the relationship, "'she had, I was quite certain, "'already spread the idea around the neighbourhood. "'What of Mary? Does she wish to wed? "'Why was he inquiring about me? "'No one ever thought of me when marriage was discussed.' I was a person of no consequence. I'd never had suitors, nor did I desire any. And now, please join me in welcoming Pamela Mingle. Hi, Pam. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you for asking me. Uh, I really uh, enjoyed your book very much. Uh, I'm a great Pride and Prejudice fan, and I uh, was—I I have to admit that I never thought much about Mary Bennett until I read your novel, and then it was quite interesting to, to find this, this entirely new story, for her. Um, some of the material we're going to cover today is already in the back of your book and on your wonderfully informative website. Um, but I'm going to try to branch out a bit to keep it interesting, uh, both for you and for the people who have already re- read your book. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so before we get to the book itself, I'd like to find out more about you. Um, I know that you were a librarian and a teacher before becoming a novelist. So, tell us about that progression, where you come from, and how you uh, came to start writing novels. Well, um,
1: it, it seems like looking back, my my whole life is has pretty much revolved around books in one way or another, Um, of course, first as a reader and then as a librarian and finally as a teacher. Um, You know, I'd always wanted to write, um, but I always had a career, so that um, limited me. I'm sure that that isn't true for some writers. Uh, I know of teachers, librarians, uh, people in other professions who still manage to to turn books out. But, um, for me, that did not seem possible, especially after I started teaching, it was kind of an overwhelming, um, obligation, but writing was always lurking in the back of my mind. And I always knew I, I wanted to write, um, one year, when when I was teaching towards the end of my teaching career, my teammate came to me and said that she was retiring and, um, so that really got me to thinking. I had started um, thinking seriously that year, I'm not even thinking, but actually started writing something um, pretty seriously that year. I had a student teacher, so that gave me a little extra time and you know I was getting up at ungodly hours to write before school and um anyway i said to myself you know if you don't retire from teaching when do you ever think you're going to write so um it kind of came down to you know making that choice did i want to to pursue that and i i think my whole career being in libraries all the time being around kids who there's just nothing quite like watching the expressions on kids' faces when you're reading out loud to them, and they're just really taken with the book and the story. And that whole experience made me think, you know, I can do this. I can write for kids, and that was how I really started—was writing for for young people. So um, I retired, and and that was that.
0: So, what were you, when you were teaching? What age level were you teaching?
1: I was teaching 4th uh, and 5th, but mostly 5th. Um, I spent a few years doing what we call looping, where I taught 4th, and then I took the same kids to 5th. Um, and then that got to be kind of overwhelming because we had so much new curriculum to learn, and so I decided just to stick with 5th, which I liked better. So that was good.
0: So once you decided to write, um, was it difficult to make the shift?
1: It, it was difficult. Um, it, it was really exciting. I mean, I was really excited about it, and sometimes when people retire, they don't have that um, element of excitement in their life, and so it's tougher. Having writing what was exciting for me. However, <laughs> it was difficult in that I had no idea how much I had to learn. I, I was Making a very naive assumption that because I was a lifelong reader, um, you know, and loved books so much that I just somehow I thought by osmosis or something I would know how to write fiction, and that was of course really naive and wrong. Uh, I mean, there's a, deg- a degree of truth to that. Certainly, if you're if you want to write, you should also be a reader. But I had so much to learn about you know POV and narration and description and characterization and uh, plotting, which is still my toughest thing. Um, so, you know, I've joined the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators known as SCBWI, started going to workshops, attending conferences. Um, I joined a critique group, um, you know, did all those, took all those beginning steps that you really need to develop your craft. And, and I slowly made progress.
0: I I think that's a very common assumption actually. I mean I as I, a historian I had that assumption also when I started writing fiction. I thought well I've been reading this stuff since I could read and it I think it's people underestimate how much of a craft there is in writing and how much work it takes precisely because the you know when you like anything especially any artistic thing if you see it well done it looks effortless.
1: Oh absolutely. And and you tend to think to yourself, I can do that, <laughs> you know, because gee, that looks doesn't look that hard. I can do that. And, and and do you remember the experience of getting your first critique from from you know somebody who was either a writer or an editor? And I remember getting that at at a conference at a, um, one of the first conferences I went to and being really crushed, but when I heard what this editor thought of what I had written, it was really amateurish, and, um, you know, it was all those basic things like, oh, gosh, show, don't tell, and, you know, you you left feeling embarrassed and ashamed, and um, like you might never be able to improve, but uh, I think think the key is realizing how much there is to learn, and how how far you have to go and once you kind of <laughs> accept that then you can really take the steps to to improve.
0: Oh I agree, absolutely. I, I mean I was actually I didn't get the scaling critique, I just got very nice rejection letters and uh, what I realized, and I found a critique group too and that really, I mean that was what actually got me over the hump and actually got me started to write in a serious way but And even before that, there was a a very nice author friend of mine who uh, tried gently to push me in the right direction. (laughs) But I go back and I look at that early stuff that I sent to people and I just cringe. I think how could I have thought it? I know. Because that's the hard part that I think doesn't get really recognized, which is that... It, it, once you get to the point of realizing how much you don't know you're okay but there's this long period before you get to that point where you don't know how much you don't know and you don't realize how how bad it is with the, the stuff that you're producing no, that's, that's and foisting exactly on people right
1: that's exactly right and it's it can be very painful to come to that realization that, <laughs> that so. this, oh, this is really bad, and I, you know, I have to improve if I'm going to go anywhere with this.
0: But the nice part is that it happens to everyone, I think. So eventually, you did, and obviously, you did get there. So you was kissing Shakespeare, um, which is not the book we're talking about today, but it was your first published book. Was that the first book that you started working on?
1: No, no, um, kissing Shakespeare was actually my. Let me think, my fourth book. But mm-hmm. oh, wait, third, third or fourth book? I can't remember now. Um, it was my it was my fourth book, and uh, it, I had I had actually. Um, well, first, let me just say briefly that Kiss and Shakespeare is about a teenage girl who travels back to Shakespeare's time to help prevent him from becoming a priest. Because if he became a priest, it then follows that he would not have become a playwright. <laughs> so um, that's what that book is about. But I had I had recently finished a book about the Great Pandemic of 1918, uh-huh. and it was set it was set here in Denver. And it won first place in a writing contest. And I was very it was you know I was very encouraged. It was an encouraging time, but it was. I was sort of in a lull. I was sending Pandemic, that was the name of the book. I was sending it out to various editors and agents. And um, so I was catching up on some reading. And I'm I'm not generally a big um, nonfiction reader. Uh, my husband is, but I'm much more of a fiction reader. But occasionally, if something really uh, piques my interest, it's something that I have a, a love for or a care about, and in this case it was Shakespeare. I don't know if you're familiar with a book called Will and the World by Stephen Greenblatt. Uh, no, um, I'm not. It was published in, I think, 2004. Um, it's a wonderful biography of Shakespeare, one of those really accessible kinds of biographies, and it really attempts to to um, define Shakespeare's life through his work. And for the most part, but there's the basic biographical facts about Shakespeare also in there, although about his early life, not very much at all is known. But in reading that book, I came across just a very brief part of the book about the idea that some scholars believe that Shakespeare was a schoolmaster before he went to London, That and it would have been when he was about 17 years old. And it was thought to be in the north of England. It was thought to be uh, possibly because his family were Catholic and he needed to get away from um, his, his from Stratford. From and then there were Catholics in Stratford. There were Catholic schoolmasters, and you know Catholics were not well received at that time. You had mm-hmm. to kind of hide. The fact that you were Catholic as a historian—I'm sure you know all about that—much more, more than I do. Anyway, um, that immediately piqued my interest, and I thought, "Wow, wouldn't that be a great story to have Shakespeare—not uh, as the main character, I would never be that bold—but you know, to have him be a character in a story that was set in England, amongst this, in the midst of this turmoil, and." Um, and he's a schoolmaster, and, you know, so then I got, at first I didn't think about time travel, but then that became an element. I wanted to mix the contemporary with the past, um, because I frankly thought that would have a better chance of selling, Mm
0: -hmm. and,
1: you know, we don't like to think about that as writers, but you have to. So I felt that that would give it um, more of an interest to a modern a young adult reader, and it, it worked. So anyway, that was how I came to write *Kissing Shakespeare*, and um, it was it was a fun book to write. It was I loved doing the research and learning all about that era, and it was just great to get to revisit all of Shakespeare and you know go to the plays again. And I just had a lot of fun writing that book.
0: It's great, so that, as you mentioned, is a young adult novel, and uh, but the pursuit of Mary Bennett is really not a young adult novel. It's really for I mean, I guess it would be good for teenagers as well because teenagers talk pride and prejudice too, but it's it's also for adults, right?
1: Correct, yeah, and it uh, i mean i I do hope some young people will read it. I think that some have, and certainly any. One that enjoyed the Keira Knightley adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, I think, would, would enjoy The Pursuit of Mary Bennett, you know. Um, but it was not it, it was not marketed towards uh, a, a YA audience or a teen audience.
0: And was it a shift for you? I mean, obviously, fifth grade isn't really a... It, it's some preparation for writing a young adult novel, but not so much. And then writing for adults is another mental shift.
1: You know, it wasn't particularly difficult to do that. Um, I think the greatest challenge in writing *Pursuit of Mary Bennett* was simply um, taking that iconic story and trying to spin it out further. Um, The good news was that lots of people had gone before me and had already—you know—there were countless sequels already written. So I knew it could be done. I knew that people had done it successfully. the the tough part was having that in the back of your mind all the time that you were working with this iconic story and then trying to be true to what Austin did with the characters. I did not want to take the characters that existed, at least certainly not Jane and Elizabeth and, um, you know, the parents and the, the basic their basic characters and personalities. I did not want to change those, so that was always present in my mind. Thinking about you know, trying to be true to Austin, to her voice, not her language so much, but um, her voice. And I'd say that was the hardest part, rather than the shift from you know, I didn't, I never consciously thought, oh gosh, I'm writing for adults now, and I have to sound, try to sound really grown up. <laughs> that that I didn't think about that. I think. Probably you don't,
0: um, because
1: the, the whole all the aspects of story are much more in your mind.
0: Right. No, I think you're probably right about that. Um, you've mentioned that writing a sequel to Pride and Prejudice was a little bit intimidating, and yet you were able to, to go, and I can understand why it would be intimidating, because it is such an iconic work, especially, and this is kind of interesting, in the last 20 or 30 years, it's become, I think, a much more iconic work, Um Yes. Uh, but you have done the novel, and you you, uh, you did a great job with it. You're a finalist for the Colorado Book Awards, I understand. And uh, So what made you decide that Mary Bennett's story needed to be told?
1: Well, um, there were a number of reasons. I knew I didn't want to write about Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, because to me their story is perfect. I mean, I just... I wouldn't want to change that in any way, and I know that there are lots of sequel writers who have, who have who have either changed their whole, you know, acquaintance prior to their marriage, or who have stepped in and written about them after they were married. That's probably the most common thing, um, but that, I knew that was not for me, and if you look up, Austin sequels. There are zillions of them that have Mister Darcy in the title, and you know, I guess you can trace that all back to the 1995 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that was um, done by the BBC that we watched here and. Um, what people think of as the wet shirt <laughs>
0: <laughs> which we have to break it to people is not in the novel <laughs> <Yes>. too bad
1: <laughs> and I don't know if you saw um, Colin Firth on Jimmy Fallon last week he was uh, Jimmy Fallon was kind of kidding him about it and he very adamantly said that, that that's Scene of him getting up out of the water was not even in the the film. It wasn't there at all. <laughs> but some extra actually dived into the water, and all they did was spritz some water on his, his shirt. <laughs> Uh, I thought that he was a little bit touchy about that. That's kind of
0: funny. Apparently so. But- it was a great scene. And there, there's apparently a very bizarre-looking statue in uh, one of the rivers in London, I think it is.
1: Oh, I know. Seen- <laughs> I mean, That's he looks positively
0: what- alien in the, that statue.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> That's actually what Jimmy Fallon was kidding him about. He had posters of this um, statue. And he was showing the posters from various angles, and uh, or the statue from various angles on these posters, and so it was. That's what kind of what made it funny. But anyway, I knew I didn't want to write about the principal characters, and I was kind of left with Mary and Kitty because um, Jane, Elizabeth, and Lydia all had husbands, and you know, kind of had a wrap up in some ways to their story. Although I did bring Lydia pretty much back into Mary Bennett, but. Um, out of between Kitty and Lydia, I felt that Mary was the more interesting. She had the greatest potential to change, um, yeah. the greatest probably need to change, and um, to to transform herself and try to go in a new direction. And I I could kind of see that the way Austin wrote Mary, and uh, that I, I could see uh, her becoming. A new person. And uh, in the beginning of the book, of my book, Pursuit of Mary Bennett, she is discontented, she's misunderstood, she's facing a bleak future, um, and having these expectations thrust on her by her parents, and to some degree, uh, even from her sisters. So uh, I, I guess I settled on Mary because I thought, here's but here's the sister that has the greatest potential to change. And I can do something interesting with that.
0: Um, yeah, I'd like to talk more about Mary in just a minute. I, it's occurring to me that, although I would imagine that a lot of the people who are going to listen to this interview will be already familiar with Pride and Prejudice, it's possible that not everyone will be. So could you give us a very brief um, Description on the situation in the Bennett household in general and what has happened by the end of Pride and Prejudice and then especially what has changed between the end of Pride and Prejudice and the beginning of your story.
1: Yes, sure. At the end of Pride and Prejudice, um, you have, let's see, Jane, Elizabeth, and Lydia all married and leaving home. And that isn't really gone into in great detail, except you know that Lydia and Wickham have gone off to Newcastle, where he's now in a regiment. Mr. Wickham's now in a regiment there, and this, of course, was all arranged by Mr. Darcy. Elizabeth's husband, um, and again, I'm sure most people don't need an explanation of who Mr. Darcy is, but um, so the Bennett household at the end has, much to Mrs. Bennett's joy, married off three daughters and two to very wealthy husbands. Um, also, both Jane and Elizabeth have found love, have uh, married for love, which as we know throughout the novel is a big uh, thing for them. They They're not interested in just making a match, although I would imagine they would have if if it had been necessary. But in any case, um, that's the way things end at Longbourn, which is the Bennett family home. Um, And we really don't know anything about what becomes of Mary and Kitty. I don't think she tells us anything. There's some speculation uh, from her, from Jane Austen's. Uh, relatives, ne- great nephews, and so forth, about what she envisioned might happen to Mary um, and Kitty both. Um, I think she has one of them married to a clergyman and one of them married to um, uh, a solicitor's assistant or something like that. In any case, what has changed between the end of Pride and Prejudice and the beginning of my book, The Pursuit of Mary Bennett, is um, Simply that these other sisters are gone. Um, They're married. They're settled and married, as Mrs. Bennett would say. Uh, Jane and and Elizabeth both have children. Uh, Jane has a son, a little baby son, and Elizabeth has twin daughters. Um, That was kind of fun to you know, think about what how that would be. Lydia and Wickham are expecting a child, and as it turns out in my book, that child plays a very big role in the book, which is different because Austin doesn't usually have children in her books, but um, this is a baby, so a little bit different. Um, let's see, Kitty and her mother Mrs. Bennett and Mary, the three of them, are often invited to the homes of, of um, Jane and Elizabeth for visits. Uh, the, the mother, Mrs. Bennett and Kitty, more often than Mary. <clears throat> on a visit to Jane's home, which is called Hytor, Kitty becomes interested in a man named Henry Walsh, who's a close friend of Charles's, and she tries to fix his interest on her. Um also, Mr. Bennett, back at Longbourn, has taken more of an interest in Mary, and he's tried to encourage her to read widely and kind of tried to further her education. She's had more piano instruction, and she's um, mellowed a little bit. She's more gracious and less judgmental. Um, she still really lacks confidence in her, uh, or as we would say today, self-esteem, <laughs> and so... She herself uh has noticed Mr. Walsh and has felt like he's noticed her, but due to her lack of confidence in herself and her lack of self esteem she uh can't possibly believe that he is interested in her and she basically believes about herself that she's you know doomed to this life of looking after her sister's children helping out with childbirths and visiting sick relatives, and then nursing her parents through their final years. So that's kind of where things stand at the beginning as the book opens.
0: Which is kind of, it tells you something about the position of woman in that time in In the actual beginning of Pride and Prejudice, the problem is that this family has five daughters and no sons, and so there's no one to inherit the estate, and they are likely to be put out by their um, cousin, Mr. Collins, who's going to inherit the estate and has the option of just throwing all of them on the street, basically. Um, So Mm -hmm. by the end, they... They've been saved from that fate because Lizzie and and Jane are now married to men of fortune, and so they can support the rest of the family if something happens. But there is still this sense, I think, and it comes out very clearly at, for Mary at the beginning of your book that if these girls don't marry, they're looking at that. There's there are very few options available for them in this society. They could become a governess and for a young girl of that station that's pretty much their only choice otherwise and a governess is a kind of high class servant you know the governess a companion to an older person most likely an old lady or they can live at home and take care of their parents and and their nieces and nephews as you mentioned so mary is i think in a particular Situation of difficulty. I mean, Kitty is flirtatious, like Lydia, and she is in a society that doesn't much value intellect or ambition or anything else, in it's women. It wants them to be sweet and decorative and good at the piano and other accomplishments, as they were called. Mary doesn't really fit in. Her, her piano playing has improved, as you say, but her personality doesn't really fit into this style. And even her parents... I mean, it's no wonder that she is she's so uncertain of herself because even her parents really disparage her and her chances of marriage.
1: yes, exactly. that's true. And um, you mentioned the the uh, options available to someone like Mary, and I wanted to explore that a little bit in writing the book, and yet um and, and you know it, There were constraints uh, at that time, as we know, uh, and there were many limitations as to what young women could do, especially young, gentle women, which the Bennets were part of the gentility, even though they were certainly not, uh, they didn't have money. But um, it it was constraining, actually, to to write about it. I felt constrained in writing about it, and I realized, probably even after the fact, that um, I felt that way because there were, were so few options. You know, it was so, it's so opposite and so different from today that it was almost painful to write about the limited choices that women had. So, and Mary even lays them out somewhere towards the end of the book when she. Is thinking about what she can do, and she mentions, I think, shop owner, which she immediately thinks, so you know, the family would never go for that." She thinks companion, governess, a um, couple other things, but as you said, they were the choices were very limited, and um, just so many constraints for women at that time. And it was, it was, it was fun to explore that, and yet it was. Um, it was constraining in many ways to write about it.
0: Yeah, explain that to me. That's really an interesting point. You, you mean that it constrained you in in what plot choices you could make or in what way?
1: Well, yes, yes, um, because when when Mary goes to her father, and this is late in the book, so I won't talk about it too much, but She goes to her father and says she wants something more for herself than to live out her life at Longbourn with her parents. Um, There, there was there was so little, there was so little to put into the book that she could of choices that she would have. And Mary, in some ways, was fortunate because, and I was fortunate in that I had the gardeners, the uh, aunt and uncle, the. Gardeners who were so played such a big role in Pride and Prejudice um, in getting uh, Elizabeth and Darcy together, and so they are also in pursuit of Mary Bennett to a very limited degree. But Mary immediately thinks that the gardeners can help her get a governess position. And but she you know, she goes, she ticks off the list of things. This is just in her own mind before she talks to her father, she ticks off a list of things she might do, and they're just so scant and they're so sort of pathetic and um, uninteresting and as you said, a lot of these positions would be basically servants considered servants. Uh, not quite treated like servants, but certainly not treated much better than servants. So yeah, it, it was it was con- it's constraining to write about it because it does limit uh, plot and choices, plot developments, plot twists, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so it felt a bit like the way it might have felt for for women living then. The choices are so few and so uh, unappealing, and you know, it it affects. I think it affected the way I wrote the book, and as well as. It, it, and maybe just that parallel to how it really was for women.
0: But that's also, I think, what makes it a worthy sequel to Austin. I mean, it's i I want to applaud you for not doing what many people do writing. Uh, Romances set in the past, where they essentially throw out all of the social conventions of the time in which they're writing and have their characters uh, behave romantically as as the sort of post birth control generation might behave. And you know, so that sense of social constraint and and decorum and the and the things that you could not say. I mean, that's a very large part of Austen, and people just don't talk, you know, the the way that even normal people meeting at a, a cocktail party now would be more open with one another than people who've known each other for years in Austin. You know, it's, yeah, if there is this, right. this tremendous sense of, of social constraint that goes beyond just the options available to women, but that are considered to be part of, of good behavior. And in a sense, it almost opens up your story in a way, because one of the, the, um, the things it's, is that when Lydia shows up without her husband, heavily pregnant, on the doorstep, and mm-hmm. there's a scandal attached, and I don't know if you want to go into the scandal, but we'll just say that it's there. Um, the reaction of their older sister is that Kitty and Mary, who are innocent girls, can't be in the house
1: with this. Can't be in the same home.
0: Yes. Right, exactly. right, exactly. So, so they, she takes her off to High Tour, um, which is her home with, with Charles Bingley. And that's how Mary really gets to make the acquaintance of Mr. Walsh.
1: Yes, exactly, and that's um, that's kind of the catalyst for the rest of the book, is at least in, in terms of action.
0: So tell us, uh, you could do this in either order. Either tell us something about Henry Walsh and who he is, or I think there's a passage that you read about Mary, that you would like to read about Mary's interaction with him, one of her early uh, conversations with him. So maybe you'd like to read the passage and then talk about Henry. Either way is fine with me.
1: Oh, sure. Sure. Um, let me do a, just a very brief setup for this little scene that I'm going to read. It's um, Mary and Kitty, as you mentioned, <coughs> Excuse me, have um, gone off with Jane to high tour because Lydia has shown up at Longbourn, uh, as you said, heavily pregnant, and there is a scandal attached to that, which is probably a little too much to go into um, for this interview, but she strongly feels that, that she needs to remove Kitty and Mary from this scene going on at Longbourn. So um, at once they're at high tour, Henry Walsh comes into the picture, and he is the man who Kitty is definitely fixed her interest on and, and has convinced herself that he is interested in her. But what we find out is... When they get to High Tor, is that he pays a lot more attention to Mary in, in some ways, anyway, as a, as a uh, conversationalist and musician and so forth. He's more interested in Mary. So, this is a scene um, not too long after they are at High Tour and they're at a picnic, all of them. And Henry asks, has asked Mary to climb a peak with him, which, in fact, is High Tor and um, Mary agrees to, to do that. So here's um, here's the scene. We walked at a leisurely pace, hands clasped behind his back. Mr. Walsh seemed content with silence. I liked that about him, that he did not have to fill every empty space with the sound of his own voice. There was no bravado in him. What is your favorite season, Miss Bennett? I thought for a moment. Autumn. And I prefer spring above every other... After the drudgery of a long winter, I'm impatient to get out of doors again. Tell me what you like about autumn. I suppose I love the colors best of all, and the leaves underfoot, and there's something about the air on an autumn day. It shimmers. Does it? His eyes held that little gleam of merriment I'd noticed the other night. I shall have to take note of it this year. We'd come to the base of the peak, where boulders and loose stones made the walking difficult. I slipped, nearly losing purchase, before Mr. Walsh took hold of my shoulders to steady me. When afterward he offered his hand, I hesitated. I felt his eyes watching me, but could not look at him. Miss Bennett, if you will not take my hand. I fear we shall be forced to turn back. The way is too rough for you to walk unaided. I promise to release your hand to your keeping as soon as we arrive on the path. I smiled, still not looking at him, and grasped his hand. In this way, we progressed and in a very short time, placing my hand in his seemed natural. Once we gained the path, the walk, though vigorous, was not difficult. At the top, we found a ledge to sit upon so that we might admire the view. We sat in silence for a few minutes, enjoying the vista. It's breathtaking, isn't it? I said at last. Indeed it is. Now you may understand why I delight in spring. The trees are leafing out, gorse is blooming, and green spreads over hills and peaks like a coverlet. Will you not change your mind, Miss Bennett, and say you like spring best? I could not help laughing. No, sir, I will not. I don't dislike it, though. Charles is a lucky man to have such a grand estate. But you are content with your own estate, are you not? Very much so. You shall see it next week, and I hope you will find it to your liking. I dared to look up at him, and his eyes held mine for a moment. There was nothing there of teasing or mocking, but still, I knew I must not read anything into his remark. He might have said the same to anyone who was sent to visit his home. Shall we go? I promised to row your sister around the lake. A reminder of the excellence of his manners and his desire to please. A climb up high tour with me meant nothing more to him than a spin around the lake with Kitty. On the way down, Mr. Walsh asked my opinion of Sotheby's biography of Nelson. On the whole, it seems balanced, if slightly biased, in Lord Nelson's favor. Have you read it? Yes, a great hero, although the Naples fiasco tarnishes him as well as the conduct of his personal life. You speak of his flirtation with Lady Hamilton? My cheeks burned. I knew it had gone much further than a flirtation, but I couldn't bring myself to say a fair. I do. Tell me, Miss Bennett, do you believe we should be judged by the totality of our lives rather than each separate part? You mean should we consider the Admiral's achievements over his whole lifetime rather than dissecting it piece by piece? Precisely. I could more easily esteem his illustrious deeds if he hadn't committed the imprudent ones. You cannot, then, set them aside? He was a great leader of men. His courage never faltered. He lost an arm and ultimately his life in service to his country. I do admire him for his accomplishments, and yet those imperfections in him... My words tapered off. I wasn't sure what I wished to express. Is human perfection possible, Miss Bennett? I would hate to have my own faults examined too closely. By now we were approaching the others. I wanted to tell him I could forgive his imperfections, but Kitty saved me from saying something so forward by accosting us with her demands. Sir, I've been waiting a horrid long time for you to row me around the lake. She gave me a disapproving look. You cannot keep Mr. Walsh all to yourself, Mary. I was mortified. Henry Walsh bowed slightly in my direction. Thank you for accompanying me, Miss Bennett.
0: Oh, well, that's very telling. I'm actually I'm delighted that you read that passage because now as I'm hearing it, having read the entire book, I realize what is really being said in that conversation, which I will not share on the air. <laughs> <laughs> The question that he's really asking, which turns out to be very important.
1: Exactly. It uh, it's kind of foreshadows uh, something about him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think it's okay to say that much. Anyway. Yes, indeed. But um, I do think the passage gives you an idea of what he's like. And Mary even says that he's, there's no bravado in him. He's He's a very genuine, down-to-earth man for the most part. Um, he is, um, a man who appreciates music and, um, writing. He loves to read. He likes to talk books with Mary and he likes to listen to her play the piano. Thank heaven she's improved as a pianist. <laughs> um, I guess I should say the piano forte, but in any case, um, he is—he's not as wealthy as Mister um, Darcy. He's a little—he's about the same degree of wealth as Mister Bingley. But he is, uh, you know, a gentleman in every respect—a gentleman. So um, that—that's Henry Walsh.
0: Yeah, he seems like a very nice guy, and it's a great passage because it also gives us a clear sense of the difference between Mary and Kitty. Um, Kitty is clearly oblivious to the fact that he is. Even potentially not interested in her, she is he, he She has decided on him, and therefore he must be responsive. And she doesn't recognize the difference between good manners and actual interest.
1: Exactly, and Jane has even warned her early in the book um, that he has not shown her, and and he's not shown any partiality toward her. I think is the way Jane puts it, and. That is true. Um, on the other hand, I think as you as you read the book after they get to High Tor and Jane and Bingley's estate and various social occasions occur, he definitely enjoys flirting with with uh, Kitty, and that uh, that becomes a little bit of a problem too.
0: Well, especially since Marriott. Mary actually has the same problem, except that the reality is different. In other words, she also doesn't really see the difference between good manners and genuine interest. Or she does, but she's afraid to trust her instincts.
1: Exactly. And, um, you know, the whole idea of Mary's... um, Mary does have these feelings of uh, being unworthy and being... um, Being a person that no one would ever be interested in, no man would ever be interested in. She has been told this her entire life by her family, uh, even at times by her older sisters, that she's um, not—you know, she's not appealing. She talks too much. She gives her opinion too freely. She's a terrible singer. You know, she's had her faults pointed out over and over again throughout her life and not in a very nice way. And even though she's beginning to change, and, and Jane even tells her she's changed, she can hardly credit that. She doesn't quite believe it. She can't quite accept it and even says to Jane, I'm nobody to admire. So that's a big part of the book is Mary's um, Mary's challenge, I guess, is to, is to overcome... Um, those feelings about herself.
0: And she's also been somewhat isolated in this family. I mean, it's tough (laughs) to be a middle child, um, just even if you have a couple of siblings. Um, But she has four other sisters, two older and two younger, uh, who make natural pairs because of their personalities and their ages. And there she is, kind of stuck alone in the middle.
1: Exactly. She is the the isolated one, as you said, who doesn't quite fit in. She, we have Jane and Elizabeth, who are very close, and Kitty and Lydia, same thing. And so there's Mary, kind of the odd woman out. And um, and then, of course, not only is she in that situation, but she is also has these various aspects of her character that are unappealing and that people make fun of and laugh at and and in the privacy of their home, actually kind of bully her about. So, um, and, and I like, I mean, I at the, she's already begun to change at the beginning of the book. She has um, mellowed to some degree. She has um, undertaken this course of education that her father, you know, helped her with. She's taking piano lessons. She's profited from visiting Jane and Elizabeth and kind of, watching what they do and learning from them. But she she doesn't really see that in herself, and she hasn't changed entirely. She has a long way to go. um, So part of the the pursuit of the title of the book is not just a romantic pursuit by Henry Walsh. It's also Mary's own pursuit of a new way of being.
0: Um, Yes, Uh, and, you know, it it is... I, I'm glad that you you write it that way I mean in a sense it's also Henry Walsh's pursuit of his own way uh, you know a solution to his past but we don't want to go into too much detail with that but but there is that third I mean he's pursuing her but he's also pursuing um, I'm not sure what I would call it an ideal maybe or or some solution to a problem that he's that he himself has created yes absolutely
1: and that. And I think also um, his own way of viewing women and his own, uh, after he meets Mary, I think his way of looking at women changes to some degree. Uh, he's, you know, he, he likes to flirt and he likes to flirt with Kitty and he... He enjoys that, but I think his view of that begins to change when he meets Mary. So he does—he does pursue also um, changes in, in his own personal life and um, and in his way of looking at at the world.
0: So before I let you go, uh, I have to bring up Georgette Heyer. I am a huge <laughs> Georgette Heyer fan. <laughs> I cut my eye teeth on her when I was like 14, 15, 16, and I've reread most of the books, and I, I particularly like the 18th century ones. But I know you mentioned on your website that you're also a fan of hers, so I wanted just to talk about her a little bit because I was very surprised to discover, uh, I don't even remember when. I think it was probably when I was first... Um, writing my own first novel which is partially set in the not not a, a real 18th century but a fictional 18th century it's called the not exactly scarlet pimpernel and it's a play on baroness ortsy's um the scarlet pimpernel uh, again with a sort of time travel element to it but when i sent it out i was working with an editor for a while and i would she was totally flummoxed by some of the the terminology that I would use which I had picked up from Georgia Hayer novels and I started yes. to realize that not everybody had spent her you know entire teenage <laughs> immersed in <Georgia. laughs> so I wanted to ask first of all how you found her and which your favorite novels are and uh, just to go into it a little bit so that people because I think people who have not read Hare and do read The Pursuit of Mary Bennett and have read Pride and Prejudice would love her and so I just like a little extension of the interview so that they could not only read your books but find a whole new author who was, she's not with us anymore, but she was extremely prolific.
1: Absolutely. Um, I I know that I had heard her name. I knew she was an English writer. I'm sure I had a sense that she was no longer living. and But I did not discover Hayer until, oh, probably maybe six, seven years ago, maybe not even that long. It was after I joined the joined Jasma, which is the Jane Austen Society of North America for the uninitiated. Um <coughs> In, once you're a member of JASNA, you, you attend meetings, they're local chapters, and we have a Denver Boulder chapter, and we have bi-monthly meetings, and so we always, you know, we're always looking for new topics. Well, one month, the topic was hair, and um I think it was just hair, because there's a lot there. And I thought, I just hair, I, you know, I don't even really know. What she wrote, I think I mixed her up with Catherine Cookson, and I—I I had, I think I had seen a couple of Catherine Cookson dramas on Masterpiece or somewhere on TV, so I wasn't even sure about the difference between them, and and I'm, I might mention. There that I'm absolutely appalled, but there aren't any dramatizations of Hayer's work. I can't believe that nobody has done an adaptation, you know, film or TV miniseries, whatever, of any of Hayer's books that I know of. I've looked for them. Um, in any case, she certainly had a great influence on me. Once I discovered her, I just fell in love, and I. Um, that, although it took a while because the first book I read was The Corinthian and I don't know if you remember The Corinthian I do remember
0: The Corinthian, right?
1: Yeah, I do I- didn't like the Corinthian at all, and I don't think that it would improve upon rereading. <laughs> well,
0: I've never reread it, but
1: I tend to like the heirs that have it's older. It's better heroines. if you
0: read it when you're 16 because the, the it, like a lot of her early books. There's this incredible age gap between the hero and the heroine, which now really bothers me. But when I was 16, it didn't bother me nearly as much.
1: No, and um, you know, and she has those younger heroines in. A lot of my favorite books, but they're usually not the main character. There's a subplot, you know, going on Mm -hmm. around a younger heroine. Um, That book, I didn't honestly didn't even remember that. What I think what drove me crazy in reading that was just sort of the silliness of the plot, and and that you know that can really be true in Hay or that can be true in those. um, Let's see, Kate. Oh, Spr- uh, Sprig Muslin, for example. The This whole plot going on there with a younger girl who um, is running off from her grandfather, and she runs into Gareth, the main character, the older hero. Mm-hmm. And that whole wild and crazy <laughs> plot that's going on with them, and how the way in which it leads to Gareth finally getting shot um, by accident. And... So, but in the Corinthian, though that whole thing was sort of center stage, that kind of silly plot. So, anyway, yeah, I, I think Hayer in her uh, her language, her um, kind of relationships between hero and heroine, all of those things really have influenced me, and as in writing something like *Pursuit of Marigold* and. Um, my favorites, gosh, I love the Nonesuch. I love um, Pharaoh's Daughter. I think the the dialogue, the the, the whole uh, talk between Max—I think that's his name, Max—and yeah, Max. uh, Deborah. Yeah, Deborah and Max is just priceless, um, you know. And when she, when Deborah decides to. Pretend that she's going to marry Max's young cousin or nephew or whatever he is, uh, and she he he offers her money not to, and then she decides. It makes her so angry that she decides to pretend that she's going to marry him when she really has no interest or intent. To marry him.
0: And her um, aunt goes so. crazy because her aunt's broke. She's running a gambling house to make money and <laughs> here Deborah has <laughs> yes. flung the so she puts it, flung millions away.
1: <laughs> yes. She all she wants is for Deborah to marry the guy and get all the money. So I just I think that is one of her best and um and I like Frederica and I like Arabella, even though Arabella does have a younger heroine, but who could not love Mr. Bomaris? I mean really
0: <laughs> yeah, no. Farrah's daughter is definitely one of my favorites. Frederica is another one. Um, it's, it's interesting. Hayer thought she could write mysteries, and I don't know where she got that impression that it was wrong. <laughs> I've
1: never read one because I've heard such awful things about
0: them. <laughs> but in her later romances, she puts in these mystery plots, and that one in Sprig Muslim, it, It's. I'm reading The Quiet Gentleman now for a Goodreads group, and it and is that's so kind of a mystery. Well, it's exactly the same as Muslin. I mean, there's so. so Similar that I actually thought it was Sprigmuslin until you. <laughs> until I got into it, and I thought, "Oh, that's not. <laughs> this is not. The, the names aren't right. They're not quite lining up properly." And so then I thought, "Oh, I think it must be Sprigmuslin That I thought I was reading, but anyway, the, what the plot is really? I mean, she 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 has a plot, but plot is really not her strength. They they do tend to be kind of absurd, uh, although Pharaoh's daughter is one exception. But uh, but yeah. her characterization is just amazing to me. I mean, she has that Austen-like ability to just nail somebody in ten words or less.
1: Oh, absolutely. And um, you're, you're never in doubt about who are the idiots and, you know, who are the ones to be admired. And, um, yeah, she's just, I mean, even though she doesn't, there's obviously no sex in Georgette Heyer, um kind of like Austin in that way, you you never have any doubt of who's in love and who, and and they can be so romantic even without that whole aspect. And
0: sometimes Um, I think it's it's more romantic, you know, like those films from the 40s, you know, a little goes a long way.
1: Absolutely, and when you said you were reading Quiet Gentleman that made me think, and it had struck me a few times lately, it must be because ones I was rereading, but you know, there are certain similarities, uh, obviously there are, but in the beginning of A Quiet Gentleman, I think he he comes into the room and he describes, um, and I don't remember her name because I haven't read that one in a long time, but he describes her as mouse-like, kind of like a Gisella, mouse.
0: yeah, her name is Gisella. Yeah.
1: And she is that, I mean, you could say that about other of her heroines, like mm-hmm. um, is it Hester in Sprig Muslim? Yes, yeah, Hester. Has that kind right. Of she m- does mouse mouseish aspect about her. Even Ancilla Trent and the Nunsuch has that same um quality. She's sitting Ancilla's frequently sitting and sewing, which is what Docilla does and what Hester does. And so, yeah, you you see the similarities. But I I definitely um enjoy her, her older heroines, I guess. But I can sure see how I might have Felt differently when I was sixteen.
0: <laughs> well, it is interesting to watch the progression because she started out with these young beauties, and then as she gets older, she she tends to focus on on the quieter, uh, older heroines, the ones who have been declared spinsters and left aside, uh, but who have real character and usually a great deal of common sense. There's usually a younger woman running around who has no common sense. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, yeah. as we finish up, what would you like readers to take away from the pursuit of Mary Bennett?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I think to me the most important thing for people to feel is that they loved the story and they found something joyous about it because that to me is pride and prejudice. I mean, when I if I'm sad or upset or in a bad mood, I will frequently go to one of my copies of Pride and Prejudice and reread, you know, parts of it or all of it because it's just, it's like a comfort book. And, um, I, I would like for people to think of Pursuit of Mary Bennett in that way, that it makes them happy, that it has a, you know, a joyful or joyous aspect about it. And I guess beyond that, um, you know, seeing the parallels with modern women um, and and their place in the world, and that it's possible to, to reinvent yourself if you need to, um, and it's possible to put off. Uh, you know, Mary had to overcome all that negativity that was being put on her by her family, and you know, we always hear those negative voices, I think, are the loudest ones. As writers, we know that. <laughs> we... we listen to that negative criticism a lot more sometimes than we should. And I think um, Mary certainly had that issue as well. So I think just knowing, you know, that it's possible to, to get beyond that, to put that out of your head and think of yourself in a new way.
0: She is that kind of person who could easily grow up to be a writer. You know, I, I mean, I was a shy teenager. That's why I spent most of my time reading Hair. she She did strike me that way as being the kind of person who's an observer, and therefore if she had the urge to write, she would be a writer. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Speaking of writing, what are you writing now? Um, I am working on another historical um,
1: novel that is also set during the Regency. It's not an Austen sequel. Um, It's more of a straight, I guess I'd call it a historical romance kind of book Um, it has some has a little politics, it has a little history it's um, but it's primarily a love story so that's what I've been working on and I'm nearly done with that.
0: Oh great well we wish you the best of luck, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, it was fun
0: and thank you for listening to our podcast. The New Books Network is run by volunteers. If you enjoyed the interview you've just heard, please consider donating to our network. It can be as simple as going to any page at http://newbooksnetwork.com. That's one word, N-E-W-B-O-O-K-S-N-E-T-W-O-R-K. And clicking on the link to shop at amazon.com. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, and today I've been talking with Pamela Mingle, author of The Pursuit of Mary Bennett. You can find out more about her at www.pammingle.com. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at capital N-E-W, capital B-O-O-K-S, capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit my blog at blog.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. Last time I mentioned the new books in historical fiction would be acquiring a co-host and moving to two interviews a month. We still expect that to happen, but I was a bit off on the timing. Life, as it tends to do, has gotten in the way, but I hope the delay will not last more than a couple of months. In the meantime, please continue to check for new podcasts around the middle of each month.